0: Today, I'm joined by Steve Gorham. Uh, Steve is a speaker, an author, uh, researcher on environmental issues. He's policy advisor at the Heartland Institute. And Steve, uh, if I say welcome to the program, welcome to the UK column, um, you are often described as a a climate change denier, is that? Do you think that's a fair uh, statement or or a fair term to use?
1: Hey, Mike, great to join you. Yeah, I don't think that's a fair term. Uh, Matter of fact, I've Uh, I think everyone believes that the climate changes. I've never met anyone who doesn't think the climate changes. So I don't deny climate change. Uh, The question is what is causing it. That, of course, is the issue. And I think the evidence shows that uh, climate is dominated by natural factors, not man-made emissions.
0: It's interesting, we we hear very little about uh, any t- uh, significant scientific research being done on uh, solar system on the on the sun, which is got since that drives everything on this planet. Yes, uh, we hear very little about uh, serious scientific research on the influence of the sun and other uh, galactic uh, effects on climate.
1: Well, it's out there, uh, but but as you know, the overwhelming consensus in the media, at least not in science, because there is no consensus in science, but, uh, but the media is driving the narrative, of course, that uh, your neighbor's SUV or a power plant or, or other things are, are causing the oceans to rise, causing storms to get stronger, causing droughts and floods. But those things really are not supported by the evidence. If you read an article in the press about the climate, it's probably wrong in a number of ways
0: reading your book, uh, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. And uh, at the beginning of the book, you're talking about uh, standards of living and and the way that humanity has developed, not just in terms of standard of living, but also obviously the size of the population that's supported by uh, the societies that we've built for ourselves uh, in recent centuries. And uh, you know, you're making the point that uh, the reason that uh, we are able to support Populations of the size that we have, it, it, to the standard that we have, um, is because of the abundant availability of inexpensive energy. Um, obviously, the, the whole climate change uh, uh, um, policy, as it's described by the uh, United Nations and so on, is is and, and by governments, in fact, is talking about. Uh, uh, Effectively removing that uh, abundance of inexpensive energy from us. So it seems to me the inevitable outcome of that is a, a falling in the standard of living.
1: It does appear that that would be the case. Yeah, in the early parts of the book, I go through what I call the hydrocarbon revolution. Most people, you know, we, we have a lot of discussion about the industrial revolution. But in the last uh, two plus centuries, the world has uh, gone into a hydrocarbon revolution. Basically, the the use of coal, oil and natural gas for all of our energy. A global energy uh, consumption is up by a factor of 30 since 1800. It used to be human and animal muscle power. Now it's still about 81% uh, hydrocarbon fuels. And the hydrocarbon revolution went through three big uh, three big changes, if you will. One was the use of coal, which really started in England uh, in the 1700s to drive machinery. Um, and then we uh, learned to take oil and turn it into fuels, like gasoline and like diesel fuel. And finally, uh, electricity, which was driven by by coal initially, and then today still mostly hydrocarbons. And those made tremendous changes. And if you look at uh, the flourishing of, hum- of humanity, uh, it's very highly correlated to uh, the use of these fuels, uh, today, uh, you know, our fuels have, our, uh, uh energy consumption has gone up by a factor of 30. Uh, we have much longer lifespans. We have lower infant mortality. We have higher levels of education. We have much higher gross domestic product. All those things are very highly correlated with the use of coal oil and natural gas. But as you say, the world has now embarked on, uh, an energy transition, uh, I should say the wealthy nations of the world, especially uh, the United States and Europe, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and some others are pushing for a thing called net zero by 2050. uh, The idea that we should get rid of all of our hydrocarbon fuels, switch to wind, solar, and biofuels, and um, also capture or eliminate all of our carbon dioxide emissions and, and make this transition. But this is, as I talk about in Green Breakdown, this is really beyond a reach out goal. It's more like a wish and a prayer. This is not something that's going to happen. And over the next decade or two, it is going to break down. Uh, we're gonna have a number of problems with, with the, the net zero transition. It's going to break down and people are gonna demand a return to sens- sen- uh, uh, to sensible energy policy.
0: That would be encouraging if it were to happen. Uh, I mean, if we just look at uh, the energy policy that we have in the UK at the moment, um, we are increasingly uh, building uh, offshore wind turbine uh, generating plant. Uh, We're shutting down uh, our nuclear capability. Germany's already done that completely. But although we have started building a new power station, it's not going to replace uh, what we're in the process of decommissioning. Um, we've closed our coal uh, power plants completely now so they are really there only for emergency use and even then it takes some ages to start up so so they're not even practical in, in that sense. Um, and uh, uh, but if we take if we take uh, wind turbines and offshore wind in particular, um, I was reading uh, in the last couple of weeks the, the fact that, that there are very few, Companies geared up on the planet to 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 manufacture the cables necessary to bring that energy onshore, and that already uh, new offshore wind turbine uh, installations are having to wait probably around ten years for for those cables. So they're having to they've got a lead time of around ten years for that. That situation isn't going to get any better in the in the coming. So it it's increasingly difficult for me to see how we can replace. Our generating capacity. I mean, in the UK we have a generating capacity of something like 80 gigawatts, and there doesn't seem to be any plan to to actually replace that with so-called renewables uh, in the time that's needed.
1: Well, you're right. There are there are a lot of issues, and, and Europe, as an outside adv- advice, uh, outside observer, I should say, from the United States, I've, I'm a little bit dismayed at what Europe has done over the last 20 years. Um, And you've recently gone through an energy crisis, and you're still in uh, some of the uh, later stages of that. Uh, But these are because of green energy policies, in my opinion. Uh, Over the last two decades, as you say, uh, Europe has closed more than 100 nuclear power plants, uh, more than 20 in the United Kingdom, more than 20 in Germany. Uh, Twenty-three of your nations have signed pledges saying that uh, you would not burn coal anymore, Uh, that there's been some backtracking on that to try and keep the lights on. Uh, And you become very dependent on two sources. One is is intermittent wind and solar, and the other is natural gas. And increasingly the natural gas had had been imported more and more. Where in the year 2000, uh, Europe was was producing more than half of its own natural gas. Uh, That has shrunk. And by 2021, 63% of your gas was imported. And then in the summer of uh, 2021, kind of a strange thing happened. Uh, matter of fact, most of the year of 2021, the wind didn't blow much in Europe. Often I put up a chart that shows the the uh, electricity from wind in the year 2021 uh, for uh, France, Germany, and the UK, which is... Uh, you know the the bulk of what of but of uh, what europe uses and it's it was down twenty to thirty percent the electricity output from wind in twenty twenty one and so what your continent did was was burn natural gas more and more during the year to make up for the shortfall and by the by the end of the year, your prices of gas had soared uh in early uh twenty twenty one the price of natural gas in europe was about um, uh, 13 to 20 euros per megawatt hour. But by December of 2021, it had soared to 80 euros per megawatt hour. Uh, and this is two months before the Ukraine invasion. A lot of people uh, blame us on Ukraine invasion. And after the invasion, uh, prices went much, much higher, but they had risen quite a bit prior to that because of the wind shortfall. Uh, Prices currently are running about 45 euros per megawatt hour, I believe, uh, up about uh, a little over two times what they were. And then electricity soared in Europe as well, because you get much of your electricity uh, electricity from natural gas. That was up by a factor of six by December of 2021, again, two months prior to the Ukraine invasion. And over the last, uh, again, the last uh, couple decades, uh, Europe has decided to rely on imports of natural gas. Uh, there was a study done by the European Commission in 2018 that uh, pointed out you had more than 40 regions of shale in Europe that contained oil and gas. Uh, there's, a, there's a big one called the Finoscandian shield that goes all the way across uh, the north of Europe from the Baltic nations all the way to the United Kingdom a big shale field that holds natural gas. But Europe decided to to hydraulically fracture none of those fields. And so you became more and more dependent upon imports. And uh, liquefied natural gas uh, is very expensive. Um, Europe pays right now about four times the price of gas that we pay in the United States. And uh, if it wasn't for the US shipping liquefied natural gas last winter and, and Qatar, to Europe, you're, you wouldn't have been able to keep the lights on uh, with, with the cutoff of gas from Russia. So, I mean, you, you've kind of gotten yourself into a bind. And let me say a little more about, about um, uh, the intermittency problem. Uh, so, uh, by the way, just interrupt me if you want me to stop here, if you got something else to do. <laughs> I know I'm kind of droning on. Uh, utility managers know that, um, you, you, can, you can't you can count on wind and solar to be reliable. You can only count about, on about 10% of the capacity of wind and solar to be there all the time when it gets very cold or when you have a heat wave and the wind doesn't blow. And so what happens is all these, uh, these states and nations that are pushing to do more and more energy from wind and solar have to uh, keep around traditional power plants. They have to keep natural gas. They have to keep nuclear in most cases. They have to keep coal, and they have to run those at much lower utilization levels. They run those down. They they keep them on standby uh, as they run more and more wind. But then the wind and when the wind and solar don't blow, uh, then you have to turn up these plants. Uh, Germany, for example, had turned up twenty-seven coal-fired power plants last year to keep the lights on there uh, with with the Ukraine situation and and with the uh, uh, with the shortage of natural gas. And so what you what you end up doing is building twice as many facilities as you normally would. You're building all the new wind and solar and you've got to keep around the, the uh, coal and natural gas uh, and nuclear facilities, and you have to run them on uh, kind of a, a, a reserve. And so you're paying for all of this. And so electricity prices go way, way up, which is one of the first problems with this push for net zero.
0: You know, in the UK, uh, the British government has been talking about for the last number of years uh, requiring um, people to certainly new build properties, new build residential homes will no longer be allowed to have uh, natural gas uh, heating uh, because in the UK and particularly in the towns and cities, uh, most people's heating systems, central heating systems are powered by uh, mains supplied natural gas. Um, yes. And so they, they want to see new homes being built with uh, electrical heat pumps, um, which
1: have, have
0: got a uh, dubious reputation in this country anyway. Uh, but uh, because most people are using natural gas, the government is now talking about asking people to remove their boilers and replace them. Yeah. That has had quite a bit of pushback. <laughs> and so the next yeah. idea, the next bright spark idea was to... Uh, Reduce the amount of natural gas in the in the pipes by replacing a proportion of the natural gas with hydrogen uh, and with green hydrogen yeah. in particular. Uh, I just I'd be very interested in your thoughts on that, uh, particularly because yeah. you know where where is green hydrogen supposed to come from? It comes from uh, using plant attached to uh, wind turbines and other renewable so called renewable sources, but but those as you say are intermittent. So uh, how how is this possibly going to work in the long term?
1: Yeah, so let me address the natural gas and the heat pumps first, then we can go on and talk about hydrogen. So about 80% of the homes in the UK have natural gas. About 90% in Netherlands, you're, you are amongst the two nations in the world that use uh, a very high proportion of natural gas. And you're right, the, um, as you know, the UK government has said, well, we not only want to build uh, a new homes with heat pumps, but we also want to replace them in existing homes and there's a few problems with this. One is it's very expensive, uh, about 15,000 pounds, as I understand, to to replace uh, a gas system or, or a fuel boiler with with uh, a heat pump. Um, and it can be more. They've also talked about insulating buildings as, and homes as well to try and reduce energy usage. I actually my wife and I have two homes. We have one in Chicago. We have one in Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach is about, on average, 10 degrees Celsius warmer than Chicago. Uh, we have gas in Chicago. We do have a heat pump in Virginia Beach. And it gets down to about zero Celsius there a few days in the year. And the heat pump just can't keep up at zero Celsius. It, we have to put on a little uh, gas fireplace to keep the place warm. But it kind of poops out. So if you're, any, and if you're in any northern parts of uh, England and it gets cold, it, that, uh, that heat pump's just not going to make it. Uh, so that's a big issue. And But, but this idea of hydrogen is, is also... Um, I just wrote an article that was published in The Daily Caller, and the title of the article is that world leaders ignore growing, problem, growing safety problems with green energy. And this push for hydrogen is, is very, very crazy in my mind. They want to route this to homes. Now let me tell you a little bit about hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen uh, only exists in nature in compounds. Uh, it's very reactive. I think they're trying to get some from deep uh, fissures in the Earth where they think there might be some pure hydrogen. But everywhere else, it is in a compound uh, because it reacts instantly uh, with air. And it also will combust at very low levels of energy. Uh, If you you ever want to read, if your readers ever want to see something ugly or your viewers, go read about the uh, hydrogen airships. From about 1905 to 1937, the world wanted to produce hydrogen-filled airships. Hydrogen is lighter than air, and it could give these things buoyancy. But they had about uh, two dozen explosions and fires, and hundreds of people were killed. These airships would just would just blow up and ignite. The last one was a Hindenburg in 1937, and then the world decided they weren't going to use hydrogen. Hydrogen is is uh, is not only very reactive uh it will it will uh, self ignite when when there's a leak and and you have an air situation but it's also a very small molecule so it leaks out very easily and to put hydro to use hydrogen you have to pressurize it to about 700 atmospheres that's 10,000 pounds per square inch uh that's 300 times what's the pressure in your car tire and so you're taking this gas which if it leaks will ignite and you are pressurizing it to 700 atmospheres, which makes leaks very lightly. And then you want to put it in in filling stations, and you want to put it through pipelines all over, and you put it. You want to put it into homes. I have a perfect example from my history. Um, I have a home had a home uh, near Chicago, and it was hit by lightning. It's, it's a natural gas home. This is about 20 years ago, and it it blew out our t- our uh, uh, microwave and our TV and a m- number of other things. And we didn't know it also put a hole in our gas line. We found out that our, our, uh, our lightning uh, arrestor system was actually tied to our gas line pipe, which it shouldn't have been. But it put a little hole in our gas line pipe and, and a few days later we, we smelled gas uh, because we're leaking out of this hole. But if that had been hydrogen, that would have exploded or it would have burned our, our house up. Hydrogen is very, very uh, self-combusting. So, you know, your people ought to be thinking about this twice. Uh, and there's a big push for hydrogen in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, I think it's just a very, very bad idea from a safety point of view.
0: I'd like to talk about uh, electric vehicles for a second. Uh, I I'll yeah. come on to, to nuclear in a minute, but electric vehicles for a second, first of all. Um, sure. And uh, obviously, we are uh, in the process in the U.K. and in other Western countries of removing internal combustion engines from the streets. Uh, we want to we want to see those gone as far from government policy point of view. That seems to be the case. Uh, in London, we've seen the rollout of the ultra low emission zone, which has resulted in a whole host of cars having to be removed from the central London area and the London area. Um, and while that process is going on, we've got more and more manufacturing <laughs> of electric vehicles, but we're not seeing the uh, the equivalent ramping up of um infrastructure to provide that that electricity to charge those vehicles we're not seeing that being installed in the uh kinds of numbers that it would need to be in on the on the on the motorways and we're not seeing it on the streets and so my question is um just how serious are governments uh maybe that's not the right way to phrase it. Let's put it this way. How, how much of a, uh, a fake narrative is it that, we, that people are being sold by governments that, that they are even going to be able to own a car in the future because the infrastructure isn't gonna be there to support the number of cars that are already on the streets if they were converted to electric vehicles?
1: The whole EV thing is, is pretty amazing. First, I should uh, mention electric vehicles are penetrating world markets. About 13% of the uh, light vehicles sold last year uh, were electrics uh, globally, and it's higher this year. And about 2% of the cars on the road, we have 1.5 billion uh, vehicles on the road today, and about uh, 2% are electrics. So they are penetrating world markets. Um, But we do have this uh, tremendous push by governments, again, driven by what I call climatism Climatism is an ideology. It's the fear of human-caused warming. We have a couple of conservative candidates in the United States now using that term. That was actually in the title of my first two books, uh, the term climatism. Uh, but the idea is that if we all drive electric cars, we can stop the oceans from rising, or we can make storms less severe if we get rid of these gasoline vehicles. That, that is not really uh, correct or supported by any kind of rational science nevertheless, electrics do have some advantages. Uh, If you can charge at home in your garage, um, that that can be cheaper than a public charger. Although electricity has gone up so much in in Europe, there may be a little bit of an issue there. Uh, If you drive a short distance to work, you can bring it home at night and charge. So it can be very convenient for people. Uh, but, But unfortunately, our nations have decided we're gonna force everybody to get an electric vehicle. Uh, We have uh, uh, actual mandates in the UK. I think it's something like 2035, uh, no new EVs sold. Uh, States in the United States, California, Oregon, Washington, New York, Massachusetts, uh, Maryland also have uh, mandates. In the United States, we have our Environmental Protection Agency that has put in uh, regulations on carbon dioxide emissions and on uh, mileage that are going to force automakers to produce EVs. So the world has signed up for this, and they seem to be moving in that direction. But the problems are mounting, and um, uh, we're finding problems with cold weather. EVs don't charge well in cold weather. Uh, I spoke at a conference and met a guy whose wife had a Tesla. They lived in Cleveland. Uh, it can get cold in Cleveland. It got down to uh, about 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, I don't know what that is, Uh Uh, about maybe eight degrees, uh, minus eight Celsius, and literally her Tesla would not charge. They didn't have a heated garage and they couldn't charge it. Another problem is if you have an apartment, uh, how do you charge your vehicle? Uh, You're gonna run an extension cord over the sidewalk, or they're gonna have to build these things, which which don't break even, these chargers are expensive. Um, Insurance is another big issue in the United, in the United Kingdom, especially a lot of headlines about uh, companies or uh, I was reading one article about uh, a guy who searched around and it it costs him 5000 pounds a year now to insure his electric vehicle. Very, very expensive. So there are a lot of problems piling up with EVs. And you say, as you say, public charging is a very, very big problem. Uh, There aren't enough chargers. Uh, they don't break even. I'm going to give you some U.S. numbers. I don't know what it's like in the U.K., but uh, in the United States, to uh, put in a gas pump costs about $20,000. Um, if you uh, if you put in a 50-kilowatt uh, DC high-speed charger, it costs you $100,000 five times as much. Uh, you can serve a customer with a gas pump in about six minutes but typically to charge an electric vehicle takes about 30 minutes. And so you can only serve one fifth of the customers. So a gas pump has a 25 to one advantage in terms of capital cost and the amount of customers you can serve. Another issue is that uh, a lot of these chargers are meant to be unattended. You know, you just put it out there. uh, Well, that's great, except, uh, you know, you get to the winter and it's dark at four or five o'clock and uh, maybe my wife doesn't wanna be in an unsupervised location, trying to charge your car for 30 minutes. We have a bunch of problems with car hijackings in our cities in the U.S. now. It's just not a very safe situation. So there are a lot of problems. And then we got issues with whether the grid can handle it, but there's a lot of problems building up with electric vehicles. I'm not opposed to electric vehicles. Um, you know, If, you, if uh, it suits your needs, that's great. But again, the idea that the governments ought to be forcing everybody to get electric vehicles um, uh, that, that is, uh, not necessarily a thing. And then the last thing you mentioned, you talked about, uh, are people going to be driving less? Yeah. Not only a charger issue, but you have the price of the EV, which is, is quite a bit higher than a gasoline car typically. So what we are seeing where EVs are, are being pushed, uh, I think we're seeing the amount of driving go down, uh, the amount of cars being sold go down. Uh, and, and some people do want this to occur. They want less uh, people to have less vehicles and less ability to drive. So, again, a host of problems. Uh, people should have choice. Uh, they shouldn't be forced to to buy EVs on the mistaken idea that we're going to control global, te- global temperatures by doing that.
0: And then we've got the question of uh, what is the actual cost uh, of the life of a, a, an EV compared to an internal combustion engine? Car, So, you know, they will say that an internal combustion engine car will produce X amount of greenhouse gas uh, in its lifetime and so on. But what is the actual cost of production of batteries which do need to be replaced after a while uh, of wind turbines, of all the stuff that that we're talking about here uh, in terms of the environmental cost of the mining? Uh, the uh, environmental cost of uh, the production itself and the va- environmental cost of the, the the waste disposal at the end. Um, has anybody yep. done any kind of work to actually work out whether uh, an EV or a wind turbine is actually making the situation better or not? Even yeah, if you believe a, the, their even if you believe their scenario about global warming. Well,
1: that's the thing. A lot of that is hidden hidden from people. You know, you buy, you buy your EV and you're told it uh, produces less greenhouse gases. It's very environmentally friendly, but you don't really get much of the story. Uh, the guy who wrote my foreword for Green Breakdown, energy expert by the name of Mark Mills with the Manhattan Institute, has pointed out that you really don't know whether your your EV uh, produces less greenhouse gases or not. Uh, electric vehicles start off with a, with a big disadvantage because the battery requires, emits a lot of greenhouse gases to be produced. And it usually takes about a 100,000 miles or uh, um, maybe 150,000 kilometers, whatever that number is to, to be able to break even. But even worse than that, there are a number of other big issues. And as you point out, metals and, and producing the battery is a big issue. The International Energy Agency says that uh, electric vehicles use six times the special metals of a gasoline or a diesel car, a petrol car, and that includes graphite and copper and nickel, manganese, cobalt, and lithium. And these metals are, are typically not mined in Europe. They're not even mined in the U.S. They're mined in developing nations. And, and then uh, the nation that does the most processing of metals is China. So a typical scenario, if you if you look at copper, I'm sorry, if you look at cobalt, for example, which is used in almost all EV batteries, uh, the biggest producer of cobalt ore is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, they produce about 30 or 35% of the world's cobalt, and uh, cobalt ore, I should say. And it's well known that in, in the DRC, they're using child labor and they're using slave labor. Well, I shouldn't say slave, I should say forced labor. <laughs> You're using child labor and forced labor to get that ore out of the hills. And then they ship it to China. And in China, they uh, process it into cobalt metal, but uh, there's huge uh, wide area pollution in China from this metal processing. There's a place called Rare Earth Lake in China, where as far as you can see in every direction, square miles and square miles and square miles, the land has been destroyed from, from metal tailings, from processing. And then uh, that goes into a battery and it comes to the United Kingdom or the United States and it goes into your Tesla or your, or your other EV and everybody says, wow, my EV is very environmentally friendly, no emissions. But they don't see what's going on with the social damage and the environmental damage across the world. And so uh, I have some friends who, who flat out will not buy an EV because of what goes on in terms of mining and, and processing across the world. And they're really more informed than a lot of the people that are buying EVs today.
0: I'll just mention uh, there's a, a think tank in the UK called the Global Warming Policy Foundation. They produced a report a couple yeah. of years ago called Electrifying the UK, and they were looking at this issue. Uh, so yeah. they they were saying uh, you know effectively that in order to replace just the UK's fleet of internal combustion engine cars, uh, you would need 200% of the annual global production of cobalt, 75% of the annual global production of lithium carbonate and 50% of the annual global production of copper just for the UK. And so then you're left wondering, uh, you know, the people that that are choosing this as a policy must understand this situation. And again, it, it strikes me that, that there, there must be, a, therefore, a, a view in their minds that, that car ownership is simply something which is not going to be uh, something that people are going to have in the future. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but, but, you know, you were talking about cobalt mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo, that going to China and so on. Um, yeah. The other thing, of course, that's going on in DRC that, that most of the environmentalists don't seem to be very concerned about is is the forced evictions, because entire communities are being moved in order to expand mm. the, the mines there. So, okay. you know, I, I'm not seeing anything positive from this, from an environmental point of view, setting aside the, the, uh, the global warming story from a, just a purely pollution and environmental and, a, and a, a human point of view. I'm not seeing anything positive here.
1: Every energy source, every vehicle has uh, environmental issues. We need to come to, to grips with those. Uh, but again, people are getting the wrong story about uh, EVs in many ways. Uh, I, uh, By the way, don't get me wrong. I, uh, uh, I, I am very much in favor of pollution reduction. Uh, the United States, uh, Europe, the developed nations of the world have done a terrific job in reducing uh, air and water pollution. Um, and the developing nations are catching up. Uh, for example, in, in the 1950s, uh, my grandfather had a coal furnace in his house in the basement. And in Chicago, uh, after it snowed in four or five days, there would be a black film of coal dust on all the snow. And literally, we had a thing people called spring cleaning. And most young folks don't know what that is. But every spring, people would, would wash all the inside of their walls to remove the coal dust. But our air is very much cleaner today. According to the EPA uh, our air uh, pollutants are down more than 80% since 1970. The uh, volatile organic compounds that come out of the tailpipe of your car are down 98% since 1970. So we've done a great job removing real pollutants. Uh, the thing that we've gotten off track though is calling carbon dioxide a pollutant. Carbon dioxide is an odorless, harmless, invisible gas, doesn't cause smoke or smog. Uh, Each one of us, uh, as we burn sugars in our body, we produce CO2. And so we all exhale about uh, uh, two pounds a day. Um, What is that? About one and a half kilograms a day of carbon dioxide, something like that. There are real pollution problems we need to solve. Uh, One is uh, a wastewater, about 80% of the wastewater that the world uh, uh, uses or disposes of goes untreated into rivers, lakes and streams. Not in not in Europe, not in the United States, but in many of the developing nations. About seven years ago, uh, there were there were Olympics in Brazil, and the swimmers didn't want to swim in the water down there. Uh, Brazil is just building their first uh, water treatment plants. We also have issues with plastic in the oceans. Uh, somewhat uh, overstated. Uh, there are about hundred million tons of plastic in the oceans. We're adding about ten million a year. And most of that is coming from from developing nations and from Asia. Uh, that we need biodegradable plastics to help solve that problem, but again, uh, we're, we're spending so much money and wasting so much time on carbon dioxide, which should not be called a pollutant.
0: It may may all be relative, but the the amount of uh, pollutants being pumped into British uh, rivers and uh, off the off the coasts from uh, water, you know, wastewater. Uh, and uh, yeah. sewage—it's it, that—is now causing significant problems here. So it's, I don't think it's just a, a third oh, world okay. co- problem anymore. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, th- I wanted to come on to the, the topic of nuclear energy, um, because yeah. uh, you know, going back to your your the, the beginning of, of uh, your book that uh, was talking about uh, the, the rising in, in living standards as a result of abundant, inexpensive energy. Um, it yeah. seems to me that a part of that equation is energy density. And of course, one of the features of yes. hydrocarbons is, is that it's a much more energy dense product than, for example, coal or, or wood. And so we see that Absolutely. progression going through. And the most energy dense uh, generating capacity we have at the moment is nuclear. Now, nuclear has a bad press because of the, the weaponization and because of the, the waste products. Um, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on nuclear and. and uh, but maybe if 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 fusion is some still some decades away, uh, why I wonder are we not using thorium, which seems like a much cleaner way to do fission than than uh, we are at the moment?
1: Yeah, let me talk a little bit about land area first since you mentioned that, and I'll go on to nuclear. So um, in my book, I discuss uh, energy density and the land needed for energy sources. And I use work by a guy by the name of Vaclav Smil, who's a a professor and scientist in Canada. He's written a whole book on the the footprint needed to produce electrical power. And uh, he basically says, uh, you know, the watts per per square meter of land that it takes to produce this power. And he includes everything. He includes pipelines and waste pits and mines and and all, all parts of things. He does an estimate. And he finds that, uh, and I, I like to ask audiences again when I present, okay, so if you have a, uh, an energy source that produces one unit of electricity on one unit of land, and another one that produces one unit of electricity on 100 units of land, uh, which is the more environmentally friendly source? And of course, the answer is obvious. It's the one that's the most energy dense, the smallest uses of land. Well, if you, if you look at that, you found that you find that if you set nuclear at, at one unit of electricity for one unit of land, the natural gas is about 0.8 and coal's about 1.4. They're all about the same. But solar takes a hundred units of land to on average produce the same electricity as a nuclear plant. A wind takes between 35 and over 800 units of land, depending on if you just count the roads and the, the concrete for the towers are you, you include all of this cover uh, fuels are the worst like your Drex plant It requires 1500 units of land to produce one unit of electricity yet the world has uh has marched off and, and said well we're going to use all these intermittent uh, uh renewables that are not energy dense at all and and we'll try and uh, try and produce our electricity these things all would be considered very very environmentally and friendly if it weren't for climatism, the fear of man-made global warming. So regarding nuclear, as I talk about in Green Breakdown again, there were quotes from the 1950s that said, electricity is going to be too cheap to meter because of nuclear. And other people said uh, nuclear is going to be 50 or 100% of our electricity by the year 2000. And it grew for many, many years, but then we ran into Three Mile Island and we ran into Chernobyl and Fukushima and we had these problems with with some core meltdowns. And all these uh, regulations, many of them useful, but I think we've gone overboard a little bit, have been put on nuclear plants. And so they've gotten very, very expensive today. Um, in 1990, the world was getting about 17% of its electricity from nuclear, and we had about 450 nuclear plants Today we have 437 and it's fallen to about 10% of our electricity. Uh, And it's because uh, nuclear has gotten very expensive. Uh, We just brought uh, a big uh, uh, traditional nuclear plant online in Georgia, it costs $30 billion. I think you have one in the UK coming online about the same price. Uh, These things, we really need a, a, a cost breakthrough, a technology breakthrough uh, to get nuclear back in the game again, it's it's much more expensive than natural gas, uh, and I, as you say, uh, molten salt reactors like thorium may be a way to do that. Uh, these small modular reactors may be a way to. I've not really seen if you add up all these these small reactors can can produce about two hundred megawatts, about a tenth of what uh, a traditional one does, but, but and if you stack a whole bunch together, they don't seem to be a lot cheaper than traditional plants. So. So we just have to see. I think we, we really need to find a way to uh, get that breakthrough and get the cost of nuclear back down, uh, which is is one of the less pol- pol- polluting sources of electricity.
0: A lot of people would um, would uh, find that a very tricky uh, statement that they're less polluting. I mean, why, why do you say that? What's, how do you get around the, the, uh, the complaints about uh, waste products and, and the length of time that they are hazardous for?
1: Well, we have waste issues. Those would have to be put uh, uh, under the land. I think there are some people, I think the French now are using breeder reactors and have been for a number of years that, uh, that reuse the waste as fuel again, uh, which reduces the amount of, uh, amount of waste. But the, uh, the uh, molten salt reactors would get away from the, the, the uh, core overheating issue if the, if the heating system fails, so we could get rid of uh, that kind of a disaster scenario. But yeah, the waste would have to be handled. But hey, we have a whole bunch of people now running around saying, "Well, we're going to put carbon dioxide under the ocean or under yeah. underground." I think if we could do that, you know, we could find a way to put uh, nuclear fuel underground as well.
0: Okay, I'd I'd like to come back to because you've introduced this term, climatism. Yeah, and and I just want to because this is a big part of this whole debate, and it seems to me that the debate has become um, uh, almost. It's become quite polarized in many ways, but it's being the polarization is is being driven by uh, so-called influencers um, in a lot of ways. So I just want to read you a comment that was that was I saw on the internet with respect to your use of the term uh, climatism. Uh, and, the oh, comment, okay. uh, yeah, and the comment was, climatism, very clever, assign an ism to a branch of science so that the ignorant superstitious masses will believe that climate change is a political position rather than an analysis based on a body of research. After all, there's a large percentage of our country that seems to base their decision making on primitive emotions, uh, and they uh, are the easiest of uh, for the conservative elites to control via their media machine and big money religious organizations. Uh, the bogus be- science behind the deniers' claims, but also the massive money trail behind the effort to stifle discussion and action on climate change. So that was that was a comment. Obviously, you know the type of person that has come from. But but what uh, I wanted to, to have a quick discussion about was because there's a whole sure. uh, industry almost on YouTube at the moment of, of people that are there to debunk uh, people that are criticizing... Science or the the types of research that are being being done at the moment, and of course the other the, the, what what this comment seems to imply is that anybody that's critical of the mainstream narrative on climate change is somehow being funded by someone. But of course, this yeah. is exactly what mainstream science is doing. It is being funded by uh, through the research grants and so on to do certain types of research. It's ignoring anybody that's asking questions about that research. Um, And it's then funding a whole bunch of propaganda outlets in the form of so-called YouTube influencers to try to convince people that climate change is uh, what is being proposed by uh, by governments and so on. So my question is, what are your thoughts on this whole this whole industry that has built up and, and the, the, the whole debate, in fact, and the way that the, the debate is being held? And do you think that, that we need to perhaps raise the, the standard of the discussion somehow?
1: First off, I'll give you a disclaimer. I'm not in the pay of any energy company. Um, I, I don't accept money for, for uh, uh, the Climate Science Coalition of America. Uh, I sell books, and I speak professionally to business organizations, that's where I earn my keep. Um, I also never say that people are liars, I never say that uh, 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 anything of the sort, I think the people that believe in the in a theory man made warming are sincere. Uh, Al Gore has been an environmentalist since the 1970s. But the data just shows that he's wrong. I mean, I think that that really is the case. Let me give you an example Uh, and by the way there are many i would say probably the majority of scientists think that that humans are causing dangerous warming but they're very very silent when when crazy articles come out they don't say you know that article is just goofy let me give you an example um uh, this summer there was a bunch of headlines uh july could be the hottest month in 120,000 years that ran in fortune And uh, the Guardian said, uh, quoted the UN chief, the era era of global boiling has arrived. that is flat out wrong. Hottest month in 120,000 years. There are oceans of data to show that that, uh, uh, today's temperatures are not especially warm. We've had one degree Celsius of warming since 1880, Uh, a very, very small amount. And it was warmer a thousand years ago during the medieval warm period when the Vikings settled Southwest Greenland. Uh, The town where they settled Havasa used to have trees that were 20 meters high. There are nothing there but scrub grasses today, indicating that it was warmer a thousand years ago today. We've had warmer periods 2000, 4000, 8000 years ago than it is today. Today's temperatures are not especially warm. Uh, There's a dig going on in Norway right now, which has been in the headlines under an ice field, and they find all these artifacts from people who lived there when there was no ice there. Uh, there's a there's a glacier in Switzerland, the Mid-Switzerland, if you've been there, or your uh, viewers have been there, called the Rhône Glacier. The Rhône Glacier is a wall-to-wall ice field between the mountains in Mid-Switzerland. The Rhône River flows out of it, goes into France and down into the Mediterranean. And that glacier's been receding for more than a century, But every time it pulls back, they find things like wagon wheels under it and they find horse bridles and they find wood that was 4,000 years old. And one scientist has pointed out that uh, for the most of the last 10,000 years, there was no ice in that valley, that glacier did not exist. So this headline, the hottest in 120,000 years, all these climate scientists know that that's wrong and none of them speak out against it. Uh, uh, There's another scientist, um, what was the guy's name? Just a minute here, a guy by the name of Patrick Brown. Uh, he wrote an article uh, uh, that made the New York Post and he said, I can't, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I can't give the whole truth about climate change. If I'm trying to put an article into Nature, he says, get an get a, a article uh, uh, accepted in a technical journal, and I don't put in the, the theory of man-made warming in there, they won't accept my article. So there are very, very slanted things going on all the time about this topic. And uh, if you look at the actual data, storms are not getting stronger. Uh, the polar bears are doing fine. We're not seeing more droughts and floods. Uh, the oceans have been rising. They're rising about eight inches per century. And by the way, they've been rising for the last 20,000 years, the oceans. Uh, so uh, there's just all sorts of distortion on this topic.
0: So what do we do about it? Um, how do we... How do we? Uh... Promote some useful discussion on it.
1: Well, it, uh, the economics and the science are going to win out on this. Um, uh, we are. Uh, it's very possible we could get cooling uh, over the next two decades. Uh, we just have to see. It's very difficult to predict Earth's temperatures. We have had, uh, as we've come out of the Little Ice Age, uh, three hundred years ago. Um, uh, you know, they used to have a thing in England called the Frost Fair, mm-hmm. right at London. Uh, the Thames River would freeze solid every year, and uh, they'd have a fair right out on the frozen Thames. They'd bring horses and wagons and build sheds out there. The Thames though, hasn't frozen solid in more than a century. Uh, it's very possible we could go, and by, by the way, these temperature swings I'm talking about are long before we had power plants or SUVs. It's very likely we could go back into a cooling period over the next 20 or 30 years. And then the, the uh, theory is gonna be very difficult to support. Uh, As far as an energy transition, that is going to break down. We are going to get higher energy prices as you have in Europe. We're going to get electricity blackouts as we're having in the United States. Uh, We're going to get less freedom for people because they want to take away your your petrol car and your, uh, your gas stove or your gas furnace. And we're going to have transnational energy shocks like has happened in Europe. And we're going to get these in other places too, as we push toward green energy. So this thing is going to break down. People are going to return a to a, uh, they're going to demand what is sensible energy. And hopefully we'll get back to working on real pollution.
0: Yes, indeed. Okay, well look, uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, Steve, how, how do people uh, find out more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, they can go to Amazon and get Green Breakdown. I would advise them to to educate themselves. Green Breakdown is a complete discussion of the energy transition. Uh, home appliances, uh, power plants, vehicles, heavy industry, uh, airlines, shipping. Tell them what's going on and what the government leaders are trying to do and how it's going to break down. They can get that at Amazon. There are eBooks available on uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Apple. And uh, educate themselves and challenge their political leaders. And, And by the way, this thing, we're already seeing it break down in the United Kingdom and in Germany. People don't wanna put in heat pumps. And so there's a lot of pressure and a lot of pushback. Uh, Again, uh, natural gas is is a great thing. If if you put natural gas in versus uh, uh, wood or or coal in a house, you reduce particulate levels by a factor of a thousand. It is the, the one fuel that has done the most to reduce air pollution over the last 30 years in all the developed nations of the world.
0: Steve Gorm, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, that's been a fascinating conversation. I hope we can speak again at some point in the future. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mike. Always at your uh, service in the
0: future.